Chapter Thirty One of The Devil's Garden by W. B. Maxwell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Tom's Audiobooks. Dot com. Chapter Thirty One. He acted his part well, and everything worked out easily, more easily than one could have dared to hope for. Not a soul was thinking about him. He had to assert himself thrust himself forward before people in the village would so much as notice that he had come back among them again. The inquest, as he gathered, was going to be a matter of form. It seemed doubtful if the authorities would even make an examination of the ground over there. All was to be as nice as nice for him. Yet he was afraid. Fear possessed him, this sneaking, torturing, emasculating passion that he had never known hitherto was now always with him. He lay alone in the camp bedstead, sweating and funking. The events of the day made him seem safe, but he felt that he would not be really safe for ages and ages. Throughout the night he was going over the list of his idiotic mistakes, upbraiding himself, cursing himself for a hundred acts of brainless folly. The plan had been sound enough, it was the accomplishment of the plan that had been so damnably rotten. Why had he changed his addresses in that preposterous fashion? Instead of providing himself with useful materials for an alibi, he had just made a lot of inexplicable movements. Then the pawning of the watch, in a false name. How could he ever explain that? Anybody short of money may put his ticker up the spout, but no one has the right to assume an alias and the buying of the clothes and hat. Instead of bargaining, as innocent people do, however small the price demanded, he just dabbed down the money. He must have appeared to be in the devil's own hurry to get the things and cut off with them. The two men at that shop must have noticed his peculiarities as a customer. They would be able to pick him out in the biggest crowd that ever assembled in a magistrate's court. But far worse had been his watchings and prowlings round and about the house in Grosvenor Place. Could he have blundered upon anything more full of certain peril? Why, to stand still for ten minutes in London is to invite the attention of the police. Their very motto or watchword is, Move on, and for every policeman in helmet and buttons there are three policemen in plain clothes to make sure that people are moving on. While watching that house he had been watched himself. Then, again, the insane episode of the eating-house, the wild hastening of his program, the untimely change of appearance in that thronged room, and his rudeness to the woman behind the counter. With anguish he remembered, or fancied he remembered, that she looked at him resentfully, seeming to say as she studied his face, I'm sizing you up. Yes, I won't forget you, you brute. His bag, too, left by him at Waterloo for a solid proof that he was not in London as he pretended. The bag was at the cloakroom all right when he came to fetch it, but perhaps in the meantime it had been to Scotland Yard and back again. Besides, Waterloo was a station he should never once have showed his nose in. The link between Waterloo and his home was too close, his own line, the railway whose staff was replenished by people from his own part of the country. While he was feeling glad that the passengers were strangers, perhaps a porter was saying to a mate, There goes the postmaster of Rodchurch. He and I were boys together. I should know him anywhere, though it's been ten years since I last saw William Dale. 
he ought to have used Paddington Station. He could have got to Salisbury that way and gone into the woods the way he came out of them. Last of all, that child in the glade, a child strayed from one of the cottages, or the child of some woodcutter who had brought her with him, who was perhaps a very little way off, who listened to the tale of what the child had seen five minutes after she had seen it. Of course, nothing much would be thought of the child's tale at first, but it would assume importance directly suspicion had been aroused. It would link up with other circumstances. It would suggest new ideas and further researches to the minds of detectives. It might be the clue that eventually hanged him. It seemed to Dale, as he went over things in this quivering, quaking manner, that from the little girl weaving flowers back to the two Jews selling slops, he had recruited an army of witnesses to denounce and destroy him. Only in one respect had he not bungled. He got rid of the clothes and hat all right, cut and torn into narrow strips they had gone comfortably down the drains of the Temperance Hotel in Stamford Street. That was a night's wise labor. But the labor and thoughtful care had come too late on top of all the previous folly. And he said to himself, It's probably all up with me. This quiet is the usual trick of the police to throw you off the scent. They're playing with me. They let me sim to run free because they know they can have me when they want me. With such thoughts he went downstairs of a morning to talk jovially with Ridget, to chafe Miss York, and with the thoughts unchanged he came upstairs to glower at Mavis across the breakfast table. His thoughts in regard to Mavis were extraordinarily complicated. At first he had been horribly afraid of her, dreading their meeting as a crisis, a turning point, an awful bit of touch-and-go work. It seemed that she, of all people, would be the one to suspect the truth. When she heard of the man's death, surely the idea must have flashed into her mind. This is Will's doing. But then, perhaps, when no facts appeared to support the idea, she might have abandoned it. Nevertheless, it would readily come flashing back again and again and again. To his delight, however, she saw that she did not suspect now, and there was nothing to show that she ever had suspected. And he thought, in the midst of his great relief, how stupid she is really. Any other woman would have put two and two together. But she is a stupid woman. Stupidity is the keynote to her character, and it furnishes the explanation of half her wrongdoing. This reflection was comforting, but he still considered her to be a source of terrible danger to him. For the moment at least, all his resentment about her past unchasteness and her recent escapade was entirely obliterated. It was a closed chapter. He did not seem to care twopence about it. That is, he did not feel any torment of jealousy. The offense was expiated. But he must not on any account let her see this. No, because it might lead her, stupid as she was, to trace the reason. He knew himself that if Mr. Barradine had died otherwise than by his blows, he would have felt quite differently toward Mavis. He would have felt then, the swine has escaped me. We are not quits. That dirty turn is not paid for. He would have continued to smart under the affront to his pride as a man, and association with Mavis would have still been impossible. Logically, then, he must act out under these feelings. Mavis must see him as he would have been under those conditions. But it made it all so difficult, two parts to render adequately instead of one. 
in the monstrous egotism produced by his fear, he thought it uncommonly rough luck that the wife who ought to have been dutifully assisting him should thus add to his cares and worries. Sometimes he had to struggle against insane longings to take her into his confidence and compel her to do her fair share of the job, to say, slap out. It's you, my lady, who've landed me in this tight place, so the least you can do is to help pull me into the open country. Moreover, as the days and nights passed, instincts that were more human and natural made him crave for reunion. He yearned to be friends with her again. He felt that if he could safely make it up, cuddle her as he used to, hold her hands at arms when he went to sleep, he would derive fortitude and support against his fear, even if he obtained no aid from her in dodging the law. He thought during the inquest that the fear had reached its climax. Nothing that could come in the future would be as bad as this. Yet all the time he was telling himself, there is no cause for fear. It is quite baseless. All is going as nice as nice. Indeed, if he had conducted the proceedings himself, he could not have wished to arrange anything differently. The whole affair was more like a civilian funeral service, a rite supplemental to the church funeral, than a business-like inquiry into the circumstances and occasion of a person's death. A sergeant and constable were present, but apparently for no reason whatever. Allen talked nonsense. Grooms and servants talked nonsense. Everybody paid compliments to the deceased. And really, that was all. At last Mr. Hollis, the coroner, said the very words that Dale would have liked to put into his mouth, something to the effect that they had done their melancholy duty and that it would be useless to ask any more questions. But Dale, sitting firmly and staring gloomily, felt an internal paroxysm of terror. Near the lofty doors of the fine stateroom common folk stood whispering and nudging one another, cottagers, carters, woodcutters, and Dale thought, now I'm in for it. One of those chaps is going to come forward and tell the coroner that his little girl saw a strange man in the wood. He imagined it all so strongly that it almost seemed to happen. Beg pardon, Your Honor, I don't rightly know as it's worth mentioning, but my little young'un seed a scarecrow sort of a fellow not far from they rocks the morning afore. It did not, however, happen. Nothing happened. And nothing happened when he came to the Abbey again to attend the real burial service, except that he found how wrong he had been in supposing that the fear had reached its highest point. He nearly fainted when he saw all those policemen, the entire park seeming to be full of them, a blue helmet under every tree, a glittering line of buttons that stretched through the courtyards and right round the church. Inside the church he said to himself, They've got me now. They'll tap me on the shoulder as I come out. Standing in the open air again, he wondered at the respite that had been allowed and thought, Yes, but that is always their way. They never show their hand until they have collected all the evidence. The detectives who've been on my track from the word go probably advise the relatives to accept the thing as an accident in order to hoodwink the murderer. The tip was given to that coroner not to probe deep because they weren't ready yet with their case, and it suddenly occurred to him that he had left deep footsteps in the wood and that plaster cast had been made of all these impressions. He looked across a gravestone in the crowded churchyard 
and saw a strange man who was staring at the ground. A detective? He believed that this man was watching his feet, measuring them, saying to himself, Yes, those are the feet that will fit my plaster cast. After the funeral he began to grow calmer, and soon he was able to believe during long periods of each day that the most considerable risks were now over. Then came news of the legacy to Mavis, the cursed money that he hated, that threw him back into the earlier distress concerning his wife's shame, that restored vividness to the thoughts which had faded in presence of the one overpowering thought of his own imminent peril. But here again he was governed by what he had set before himself as his unfailing guidepost, the necessity to conceal any motive for an act of vengeance. What would people think if he refused the money? It was a question not easy to answer, and the guidepost seemed to point in two opposite directions. He was harassed by terrible doubt until he and Mavis went to see the solicitor at Old Manningley. During the conversation over there, he assured himself that the solicitor saw nothing odd in the legacy, and made no guess at there having been an intrigue between Mavis and the benefactor, and further he ascertained that this was only one of several similar legacies. All was clear then. The guidepost pointed one way now. They must take the money. But this necessity shook Dale badly again. It seemed as if the man so tightly put away in his lead coffin and stone vault was not done with yet. It was as if one could never be free from his influence, as if, dead or alive, he exercised power over one. Dale resisted such superstitious fancies in vain. They upset him, and the fear returned, bigger than before. It was irrational, bone-crumbling fear, something that defied argument, that nothing could allay. It was like the elemental passion felt by the hunted animal, not fear of death, but the anguish of the live thing which must perforce struggle to escape death, although prolonged flight is worse than that from which it flies. Dale had no real fear of death, nor even fear of the gallows. If the worst came, he could face death bravely. He was quite sure of that. Then, as he told himself thousands of times, it was absurd to be so shaken by terror. Terror of what? And he thought, it is because of the uncertainty. But there, too, how absurdly foolish I am. For there is no real uncertainty. My crime cannot and will not be discovered. If I were to go there now and accuse myself, people would not credit me. He thought also, in intervals between the paroxysms, I suppose what I've been feeling is what all murderers feel. It is this that makes men go and give themselves up to the police after they have got off scot-free. They are safe, but they never can believe they're safe. They can't stand the strain, and if they didn't stop it, they'd go mad. So they give themselves up, just go and get a bit of quiet, and that is what I shall do if this goes on much longer. I'd sooner be turned off short and sharp with a broken neck than die of exhaustion in a padded cell. Then suddenly chance gave the hateful money an immense value, converted it into a means of escape from the outer life whose monotony and narrowness were assisting the cruelly wide inner life to drive him mad. He went to vine pits, and the strangeness of his surroundings, the difficulties, the hard work, 
produced a salutary effect upon him but most of all he drew strength and courage from the renewal of love between mavis and himself that was most wonderful like a new birth rather than a reanimation they loved each other as a freshly married couple as a boy and girl who have just returned from their honeymoon and who say we shall feel just the same when the time comes to keep our silver wedding so he toiled comfortably almost happily mavis was perfectly happy and he found increasing solace in the knowledge of this fact then onward his busy days were free from fear except for the transient panics which as he surmised he would be subject to for the remainder of his life they did not matter because he could control them to the extent of preventing the slightest outward manifestation all at once while transacting business he would feel the inward collapse deadly cold a sensation that his intestines had been changed from close-knitted substance to water and he would think this person a farmer a servant old mr bates anybody suspects my secret he guessed it a long while ago or he has just discovered the proofs of guilt nevertheless he went on talking in exactly the same tone of voice without a contraction of a single facial muscle with nothing at all shown unless perhaps a bead of perspiration on his forehead good morning sir many thanks sir yes mr enville the stuff shall be at your stables by one p m sharp i'm making it my pride to obey all orders punctually whether big or small thus he got on comfortably enough during the daylight waking hours but the fear that had gone out of the days had made its home in the night sleep was now its stronghold his dreams were terrible they were like immense highly colored fabrics reeling off the vast gray thought loom that dreadful thought machine that worked as well when the workshop was darkened as when all the lamps were burning their pattern displayed infinite variety of detail but a constant similarity in the main design they began by his being happy and light-hearted that is he was innocent and then gradually the horrible fact returned to his memory recently or a long time ago he had killed a man that was always the end of the dream his lightness and gaiety of spirits vanished and he felt again the load that he was eternally forced to carry on his conscience the details of one form in which the dream worked itself out were repeated hundreds of times there was a strange man who at first made himself extremely agreeable and yet in spite of all his amiability dale did not like him nevertheless there was some mysterious necessity to keep friends with him even to kowtow to him and dale gradually felt sure that he and this man had met before and that the man knew it but for some sinister purpose concealed his knowledge they went about together in gay and lively scenes and the man grew more and more hateful to dale becoming insolent making disparaging remarks sneering openly and laughing when dale only tittered in a nervous way and swallowed all insults and dale could not do otherwise because he was afraid of the man and finally this false friend disclosed his true hostile character in some strikingly painful manner for instance the man would make dale take off his boots for him in some public place they were together in a place like the lounge of some grand music hall the electric light shone brilliantly a band played at a distance the gaily dressed crowd gathered round them young london swells with white waistcoats pretty painted women 
old men and young girls, and all of them watching, all contemptuously amused, all grinning because they understood that, though so big and strong, he was at heart a pitiful sort of poltroon, and that his companion was showing him up publicly. "'Yes, you shall take my boots off me, that's all they're fit for.' And in spite of his anguish of resentment, Dale dared not refuse. The man had moved to a divan, he reclined upon his back, lifted his feet, and Dale, pretending to laugh it off as a bit of fun, took him by the heels. Then he uttered a terrified cry, because he saw it was Barradine, dead, battered, with glassy, staring eyes. All the people rushed away screaming, the lights went out, the music ceased. Dale was alone at dusk, in a rocky wilderness, still dragging the dead man by the heels. And then he would wake to find Mavis bending over him, to hear her saying, My dearest, you are sleeping on your back, and it is making you dream. He clung to her desperately, muttering, Quite right, Mave, don't let me dream. It's a foolish trick dreaming. Then he would settle himself to sleep again, thinking, It is all no use. I love my wife. I bless her for the generous way in which she has risked all that money to give me a fresh start. I enjoy the work. I believe I may succeed with the business, but I shall never know real peace of mind. And sooner or later my crime will be brought home to me. It is always so. I've read it in the papers a dozen times. Murderers never get off altogether. Years and years pass, but at last justice overtakes them. Already, although he did not recognize it, had come remorse for the wickedness of his deed. He had no regret for the fact itself, and not the slightest pity for the victim. Mr. Barradine had got no more than he deserved, the only proper adequate punishment for his offenses. But Dale knew that, according to the tenets of all religions, God does not allow private individuals to mete out punishment, however well deserved, especially not the death penalty. He resolutely revived his idea of the dead man as a thing unfit to live, just a brute without a man's healthy instincts, a foul debauchee, ruining sweet and comely innocence whenever he could get at it. Such a wretch would be executed by any sensible community. In new countries they would lynch him as soon as they caught him. A lot of chaps like myself would ride off their farms, heft him up on the nearest tree, and empty their revolvers into him. And it wouldn't be a murder. It would be a rough and ready execution. Well, I did the job by myself, without sharing the responsibility with my pals, and I consider myself an executioner, not a murderer. He could now always make the hate and horror return, and be as strong as they had ever been, and thus solidify the argument whereby he found his justification. No mercy is possible for such brutes. Subconsciously he was always striving to reinforce it, as if the voice of that logical faculty which he admired as his highest attribute were always whispering advice, reminding him, this is your strong point. It is the only firm ground you stand on. You can't possibly hope to justify yourself to other people. But if you don't justify yourself to yourself, then you are truly done for. And he used to think, I have justified myself to myself all along. I was never one who considered human life so sacred as some try to make it out. 
Why should it be? Aren't we proved to be animals, along with the rest? The parsons own it nowadays themselves, allowing a man's soul to be what God counts most important, but not going so far as to say any animal's soul isn't immortal too. Then where's the sacredness? If it's right to kill a vicious dog or a poisonous snake, how is it so wrong to out a man that won't behave himself? insensibly this consideration had the greatest possible effect on his conduct without advancing step by step in a reasoned progress he understood that any one holding his views on human life generally should not attach an excessive value to his own individual life he must carry his life lightly and be ready to lay it down without a lot of fuss sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander he acted on the maxim risking his life freely courting dangers that he would have avoided in the days before the day on the day on which he executed Mr. Barradine. Executed, yes. But God would not have authorized him, although Judge Lynch would. God would say, It must be left to me. I will attend to it in my own good time. From my point of view, perhaps, keeping the man alive is in truth his punishment, and to kill him off is to let him off. You have come blundering with your finite intelligence into the department of omniscient wisdom. Instead of interpreting my laws, you have set up a law of your own invention. And Dale sometimes thought, but there isn't any God. All that is my eye and elbow. I believed it once, but I shall never believe it again. His thoughts about God's laws were curious and baffling to himself. They had always been there, always active but in a manner secondary and faint when compared with his thoughts about his infringement of men's laws. Faith in God had seemed to be quite gone. It used to permeate his entire mind, and yet it dropped out as though it had been only in one corner of his mind and a hole had been made under that corner for it to fall through. Now he sometimes had the notion that it went out through many holes as if it had been forcibly ejected and that his whole mind was left in a shattered and unstable condition. Then it began to seem that the faith had not truly been altogether got rid of. Fragments of it remained. Rapidly, then, he reached the certainty that he wished to have the faith back again. His was an orderly, solid mind that could not do with cracks and holes in it. Trimness, neatness, and firmness of outer wall were necessary to its well-being openness to windy doubts ruined it he felt that an accidental universe was the wrong box for it he wanted to believe in the god who created order out of chaos the god who had settled cut and dried plans for the whole of creation yes the god made in man's image and yet the maker and ruler of man and some days he did believe and some days he couldn't but all at once an idea came first soothing, then cheering him. He thought, whether I believe it or not, I'll take it for granted. I'll act as if God is real. He did so, acting as if God were believed in as truly by him as by the most staunch believers. He clung to the idea. It seemed to be the way out of all his troubles. He would make peace with God. Then there would be no need to bother about men or offer any confession of his guilt to them. He grew calmer now. Doing things had always suited him better than brooding over things. 
His new determination illuminated the reason for reckless adventures and lifted their purpose to a higher plane. He thought now that he held his life at God's will, to be given back to God at a moment's notice. The thought made him calmer still, made him strong, almost made him happy. A life for a life. He would expiate his offense in God's good time. So no danger was too big for William Dale to face. His courage became a byword. Gentlefolk and peasants alike admired and wondered. Out of the consistent course of action came the consistency of the thought that was governing the action. Assumption of the reality of God as a working hypothesis led to conviction of the existence of God. Yet strangely and unexpectedly the attempt to formalize his faith almost shook his faith out of him again, although throughout the episode of his acceptance by the Baptist he seemed so stolid and matter-of-fact he was truly suffering storms of emotion. He fell a prey to old illusions, that unreasoning fear returned. He was thrown back into the state of terrified egoism which rendered lofty impersonal meditation beyond attainment. That evening when for the first time he went to the Baptist chapel, the illusion was strong upon him that every man, woman, and child in the congregation had discovered his secret. When they all stood up to sing, it seemed that he was naked, defenseless, utterly at their mercy. With every word of their carefully selected hymn, they were telling him that they knew all about him. When they began their third verse, they simply roared a denunciation straight at him. But thus the eternal counsel ran, Almighty love, arrest that man. And the second and third hymns were just as bad, shaking him to pieces, tumbling him headlong into the terror he had felt when his crime was no more than a week old. The rest of the service entranced and delighted him, made him think these people are in touch with God, and their God is full of love and mercy. If he would accept me, I should feel safe. At the end of the service he knelt, praying for this to happen. Then he went home and doubted. The fear was on him again in the beginning of his interview with Mr. Osborne, the pastor. He thought, this man has seen through me. He knows. Perhaps his past experiences have taught him to be quick in spotting criminals. He may have been a prison chaplain some time or other. Anyhow, he knows and he'll try to get a confession out of me, as sure as I sit here. But the beauty of the conception of God as unfolded by Mr. Osborne banished the fear. He thought, if I had been told these things before, I should never have ceased to believe. I feel it through and through me. This is God, and if I am not too late, if he will still accept me, I shall be saved. Christ, the friend, the brother of man, same as described by Mr. Osborne two minutes ago, can do it for me if he will. He can take me home to Father. A verse of one of those hymns echoed in his ears. None less than God's Almighty Son can move such loads of sin. The water from his side must run to wash this dungeon clean. And once more he prayed to the God of the Baptist, and then once more doubted. While he was walking home, he thought, it is too good to be true. Perhaps I'm foolish to pin my trust to it. Do I believe in it all, or do I not? He wanted a sign, 
and when the storm of thunder and lightning burst like the most tremendous sign one could ask for, he seized this opportunity of risking his life and said, Now I stand here for God to take me or leave me. He was left, not taken. The fear vanished, the doubt passed, and he had made his way into the Baptist church exactly as if, as Mr. Osborne had said, there was an irresistible pressure behind him, and he could not make his way anywhere else. It was all right after his baptism. He knew then that he would never doubt again. The faith was permanent now. It would last as long as he himself lasted. He had no more evil dreams. He slept soundly as a man sleeps when he has got home late after a tiring journey. And in the morning and the evening of each day he thanked God for having accepted him. Then came the years of tranquility, the respite from pain, his golden time. He was prosperous, respected. He had a loved and loving wife and lovely, lovable children. He had grain in his barns, money in his bank, peace in his mind. He felt, too, all the better part in him growing bigger and bigger. Religion, in simplifying his ideas, had increased their value. His intellectual power seemed wider and more comprehensive when exercised with regard to all things that can be learned, now that he had entirely ceased to exercise it with regard to things that must not be questioned. And then there had happened something that was like the knocking down of a house of cards, the blowing out of a paper lantern, or the obliteration of a picture scratched on sand when the inrushing tide sweeps over it. His soul turned sick at the thought that God had not accepted, but rejected him. God refused his offer of humble homage, had seen the latent wickedness in him, had kept him alive until he also could see and loathe himself for what he really was, a wretch who in wishes and cravings, if not in accomplished facts, was as vile as the man he had slain. End of chapter 31 Recording by Tom Weiss Tom's audiobooks dot com